to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 today, and we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics in the whole Bible to talk about, so the sermon's going to be about four hours long today. That, that's a joke, guys, that's a joke. So, all right, if you have the, if you have the notes up on screen, I can't see them for your, uh, we can get the, do we have the sermon illustration notes there? Okay. Do, 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 do. Okay, yeah. All right. So, the, <clears throat> Ephesians 1, or chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and when we get to the text highlighted in yellow, I like us to all read aloud. It says this. This is the word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is... This is the reading of God's word. That's a mouthful. And like much of Ephesians, what is required is that we take our time and examine it slowly in chunks. And so that is what we are going to do today. Uh, But before we do that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you that uh, we are able to be both hearers and doers of the word this morning. And may our obedience in both listening and living uh, out the word give you glory. God, we ask that you would help us walk in a worthy, a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Thank you, God, for your word. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, today we are talking about one of my very favorite topics in the whole Bible, which is this idea of unity. And I really like talking about this because I believe that there is no other place in the entire world where you can find as strong as unity and as strong as togetherness and a sense of oneness other than in the person of Jesus Christ. And I know that that's a bold statement to make because a lot of us have had, uh, our church experience has been one of division, but I want you to notice something right now, okay? is that this is the only community in the entire world that allows people to come in with every kind of past, with every kind of issue, with every kind of uh, shame in the world, and you can come here and you can find no shame and no regret and you can have a new life and you can be forgiven. Why? Because of Jesus. Okay. On top of that, If you've come to a place where you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't need the outside world to validate that in order for you to feel loved and accepted and unified, okay? And if you look at the culture right now, if you look at what's been happening the last 20 years, it's try to ban this culture of inclusiveness. We want something unified. We're all one. We're all this. We're all that. But does it really feel like it's a unified culture? No. 
And I would submit to you that the only place where you can find that kind of unity, that kind of togetherness, that kind of oneness is only in the gospel. It is only in Jesus. It is the best worldview out there in the marketplace of ideas. And I would say that it's superior to any other in the terms of church unity. When church unity, when Christians rock at church unity, I'm going to argue that there is a powerful wave of the spirit of God that actually, that God actually uses the unity to further the gospel in a way that happens if it can't. I remember growing up, and uh, I grew up in a place called Surrey, British Columbia, which is kind of like a city. Uh, it would be what Airdrie is to Calgary. It's a city just outside of Vancouver. It's about 400,000 people, but it sported the largest school district in the entire province of BC. And when I was a kid, I had this dream. I had this dream of going into my inner city high school and getting up in front of the kids and sharing my faith in front of everyone at high school. And my whole high school would come to know Jesus. They didn't. But I was praying for that. Little did I know that the high school across the street, there were Christians my age who felt the same way. And then across the street from that, across the city, and we began to get together before Facebook or before we had any kind of networking thing. And we began to pray that the gospel would spread in our high schools. Ironically, this is also where I met Liz for the very first time. Our, we were praying for revival in our high schools. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we, and we, we encouraged each other. We sought the Lord together. And by the end of the year... Every single high school in the entire city had a group of teenagers either praying or outreaching in their high school. Isn't that cool? That is awesome. There is, I'm going to make the argument that there is actually nothing more important to God than uniting everything under Jesus. Remember what we talked about in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1, that God made the mystery made known. And what was that mystery, do you recall? That he would bring everything under who? Jesus. Okay. And I believe that if we want to see God move in a powerful way, we must be eager to maintain the unity. And I think that's what our text actually tells us about today, is that our text, the main point of the text is this, is that God is calling us to be zealous for the idea of fighting for the unity in the bond of peace. How many of you, I know this is a strange question to ask, my remote's not working here, can you go to the picture of the, uh, um, not that one, yeah that one, how many of you are farmers by trade? I know that's a weird question to ask in this church, but hands up. Hands up. All right. How many of you, you're, you're, farmer, you, you, you're not farmers by trade, but you grew up in a farming family? Okay. All right. How many of you are gardeners? All right. So you can relate to the story I'm about to tell you. Uh, I had a friend of mine. <clears throat> he's a friend, honestly. It's not me. Like, 
I had a friend of mine who uh, had never grown anything in his life before, so he thought he would try his hand at gardening. And uh, he decided that he would grow green beans. But instead of uh, growing green beans by the vine, you can actually get a bush. I wasn't really aware of that. So he tried it, and he planted it in his kitchen in late April. And then it took him, and then later uh, in the year, he took those same green beans that he had raised and put them in his raised garden bread by early June. Okay. Now, as he went out, he went out on holidays for a couple of weeks, and he came back to inspect the garden. What do you think he came back to see? What's that? No, not that. That's just a picture I pu pulled off of Google. <laughs> okay. He came back to see that his beautifully growing beans had been nibbled down all the way to the stalks. He was so bummed. As I'm learning and watching everyone around here who gardens and farms, and I'm learning about planting and weeding, and I'm learning that those are really only one part of a gardener's battle. Protecting what you plant is as big or bigger. You can get everything right as a gardener or a farmer. You can have your seeds can be awesome. Your soil can be perfect. Your fertilizer be, can be fantastic. But if you do not consciously work to protect the plants, they will be attacked by any number of assailants. Insects, slugs, birds, mice, deer. I mean, it goes on. Rabbits, thank you. I didn't realize that that was a thing. Now here's where the connection comes in. One of the things I'm not so sure that we're as conscious of is the same thing is true when we talk about church unity. If we do not intentionally work, and I mean that we're not passive, that we're actually doing something every day as an action step to protect the unity as believers, it will be attacked. Not by slugs or potato bugs, but by twisted truths, subtle diversions, and false teachers. If you take the time to read the rest of scripture, you will realize that we're having, we have an enemy who's trying to divide us 24 summer, the summer, seven. This is Satan's number two strategy in defiling the church. Some of you type A persons are wondering what the number one favorite strategy is, and that's unbelief. But backed is the number two one, which is divide. Divide and conquer has always been a military strategy dating back in time. And this is where you and I have to get off our spiritual recliners and put some battle gear on and let there be no division among the churches, okay? I want you to think about this for a minute. I want, if you remember the story of how uh, in Genesis chapter 1 all the way up to the end in Revelation, okay, there is this constant theme that Satan tries to put a wedge between you and God or you and your relationships or you or whatever. What happens in the garden? Does anyone remember? The snake talks to Eve and uh, tries to put a seed of doubt that God is actually not 
in, uh, has Eve's best interest in heart, there's a division one, uh, a wedge of division that happens in there. Okay? And when Eve and Adam take a part of the uh, fruit and they sin, there is a divide uh, between God and us. We call that what? Sin. Okay? Think about your marriages for a minute. Think about your kids. You, how many of you are parents, right? If you're parents, you know that the number one tactic of your kid is what? To divide and conquer. Let me give you an example, right? We have these like monster cookies and we have this thing called a snack drawer. And uh, we say, James, you can only have one between now and bedtime, right? So he goes to mom and he goes, this happened the other day. And uh, he goes to mom and he says, uh, Hey, mom, can I have a cookie? And mom's like, no, you can't have a cookie. And he hasn't really figured this out yet, that we have an all-open concept kitchen, so I can hear this. So he's, she, he runs all the way over to the living room and asks me, hey, dad, can I have a cookie? What is he doing there? He's trying to divide. He knows, right? He knows if mom can't say it, dad doesn't say it. What I'm trying to get at is that there is an enemy that we have. His name is Satan. And his number two strategy is to divide. Why? Because, and we're going to talk about this later, God's intention is to unify all things under Jesus. Okay? Unity is very, very important to Jesus. He died for it. In fact, in the high priestly prayer, which is the prayer that he prays for, right before he goes to the cross... He prays that we would be one as he is with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Unity matters to Jesus. And so today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us a series of observations from the text that we make in unity. And there is a lot. It's going to be like a fire hose. But I'm going to give them to you. And what I want you to do is I just want you to pick one. One that you can work with this week and just say, this is where I'm going to work at uh, being eager to maintain the unity in the body of Christ. And I'm just going to say that when we talk about unity in the body, I think there, there are three arenas, this is, this is my opinion here, where that comes out. There's the arena of uh, denominations, like how do we work with different kind of churches, there's unity at that level. There's unity at the local church level. How do you work with people in the church? How do you have unity there? And how do you have unity in your personal relationships when you disagree? So uh, I just want you to look at that. And the very first thing that I am going to say is that unity is going to hurt. Okay? Unity will hurt. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. I therefore am a prisoner for the Lord, and I urge you to work in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. Okay? So what you have here, what you need to understand going forward is that uh, chapter or verse 1 of chapter 4 is a pivot verse. Remember how I told you that when we started with Ephesians, Ephesians is neatly divided into theology and practicality. So the first three talk about our standing with Christ, and the last three chapters talk about, okay, this is, this is everything that Jesus has done for you. This is the basic theology. And now I'm going to tell you, and verse 1 says this, now I'm going to tell you how to live it out. But before I tell you to live it out, 
I need you to remember that I'm a prisoner, okay? Now, when I read that in my, when I was studying for this passage, I actually got a little annoyed at Paul, okay? Why do you think I got annoyed at him? Because he's repeating himself. Have you ever had a friend who has to constantly remind you that their life sucks, right? All the time, like the, you know, that this happened and this happened and the world was this bad and, you know, my, my world is all this. This is what I felt like when I was reading this verse because it's less than a chapter in chapter 3, verse 1, that he tells us that he's a prisoner. So twice in, in the span of a chapter, he's telling us that he's a prisoner. And I'm just like, well, why, why do you need to remind us that you're a prisoner for Jesus? We get it. And I think it's this. I think it's to remind us that what, what he's about to say, everything that he is about to tell us right now from how to live, from being the unity to spiritual gifts to not letting in a wholesome talk coming out of your mouth to anything about marriage, it, it could put you in a position where it hurts. Like Lane mentioned last week, there are some challenging things that Paul says ahead in chapter 4, 5, and 6. And he's going to bring those things up, and he's going to call us to live those ways. And here's the thing. It could be challenging to do, but it actually might have a negative consequence on your life. And I want to make the argument that it's no accident that the very first commandment that Paul gives is for us to be unified, because that's exactly what he went to prison for. You remember the story? I told you about the story. Paul believes that the gospel is not just for Jews, it's for Greeks and Romans and for the entire world. And so he goes back to uh, Jerusalem, and while he's there, people don't like that idea, and so they falsely accuse him of doing what? Any takers? Defiling the temple by bringing someone who wasn't Jewish into the temple. His whole reason why he's there in the first place is because he believes that the dividing wall of hostility has come down, right? And he got into legal trouble because of it. And I think it's a reminder that you and I need today that unit, everything that we're going to learn about, including unity, might actually place you in a spot of suffering. And you could suffer for it even to the point of being in prison. That was true in the, if Ephesus and it's actually true today, even that prison part. There are, <clears throat> you could not only suffer relationally or economically, but you could also suffer in the legal sense for everything that we're about to say, right, uh, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. There are some things about Ephesians that if you've grown up in church, won't seem that earth-shattering to you, but while everyone was getting upset about the mass, people didn't realize that there were laws that make what uh, teaching out of Ephesians puts me in, as a pastor in a legally gray area of sharing with you. Unity might cause you to suffer. Okay? So, just hold on to that. Also, I'm going to go on to say this. Unity requires humility. Uh, LaSalle, you're just going to have to be my PowerPoint person. <laughs> okay, thank you. 
Unity requires humility. Listen to what it says in the second verse. It says, I urge you uh, uh, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with another in love. You see, uh, unity properly understood means that we don't think about ourselves. And by the way, I'm not, I want to stop there for a moment because I know for some people, humility means that you've got an inferiority complex. But humility, as the Bible describes, is not about whether or not we think, uh, we think how great, grand or high are you. It's how willing you are to serve. In order to be unified, you've got to think about other people. You've got to humble yourself. Well, how would you do that? In the context of church, big church, like all the churches, how would you do that in terms of the local church and how would you do it in terms of the relationship? Let me give you an idea right, right, right away. And the first one is, is I think you need to determine what you would sacri- what you would, what you believe let me how determine what you would sacrifice a relationship for. Okay. And I'm talking here not only about the essentials, but not but also the non-essentials. And what I mean by that is I want you to think about what are the doctrines in your life that you would have to change in order to keep the friendship. And what what are those ones? What and what ones? What are, what are your core beliefs? What are the things that you say? Like I will not change my beliefs in order to establish the, re- the friendship. Those or keep the relationships. Those are both the essentials, and I would also argue the non-essentials. And here's what I mean by that. So when we talk about essentials, I'm talking about things like who Jesus is, that he died and rose again, that it's not a metaphor, that it actually happened in history. I'm talking about stuff like the Bible is true and historically accurate. I'm talking about stuff like the, the, the God is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that there is a heaven and hell and all that kind of thing. But there are also, those are required uh, for us to have fellowship with one another. But sometimes, too, our minor doctrines get in the way. Uh, I want to be careful with this. Uh, all right, let me explain this for a minute, okay? You'll understand once I explain. Um, I made a vow when I was not in high school that I wouldn't date until I graduated. So the very first girl that I dated was uh, when I turned 19 years old, and I thought I was going to marry her, right? And uh, I was just in love with her, and I was an idiot, okay? Because I didn't realize that, you know, there was a better person named Liz. Liz was just phenomenal. Anyway, um, this girl had some very weird spiritual beliefs, right? Stuff that I was willing to... Because I wanted a girlfriend, I was willing to like put up with stuff like, and you're you're gonna think, oh, Dan, like stuff like uh, she believed God gave her the spiritual gift of time travel, right? Okay, okay, yeah, I know we get that laugh, right? So I, I started dating her for a while, and uh, at this point in my life, I knew that I was gonna be called into ministry, and um, also at the same time. Uh, she told me about a year into the relationship that God had called her to be a senior pastor. And I didn't know what to think about that, right? Because at that point in my life, I, I really, 
I was really like, that's a minor issue. I don't really care about that. I just want to know that you love Jesus and that's good enough. But here's the problem. She, she, she asked me what I thought about it. And I was like, I don't know. Like, and I was just, and I realized that at the moment, my relationship is on the line, <laughs> right? And I realized that something, something happened inside of me where I was tempted to give her the answer that would make sure that we didn't break up, <laughs> right? Can you, can you identify with that? Um, and so I went back to my youth pastor at the time, his van, and I just said this, and he said, and he said this, you, you can't let whether or not she breaks up with you determine what you believe about this. You've got to figure it out so, on your own. So if you do believe that women can be senior pastors, that has to be something you have to make devoid of your, your relationship, right? Um, so I did, and I made the wrong... Well, I, I don't think I made the wrong one, but... I told her, and it ended the relationship, right? She needed somebody, do you see what I'm trying to get out of? She needed somebody who could affirm that truth in her, or that, that thing in her, and it wasn't me. And so what I'm trying to say is that there are, the, the reason I'm telling you that story is because there, while my fellowship with her as a believer didn't change, my fact that I was a boyfriend did, right? And what I'm trying to tell you is that there are things that you believe, both on a core level and not a core level, that you might have to sacrifice in order to keep the relationship. And what I'm trying to tell you is that you need to determine what ones you won't bend on. What are the doctrines, what are your core beliefs that you will give up a relationship for, okay? It's really important you understand that because the second thing I'm going to tell you to you is, that th- th- is this, is that you want to hit the next slide. <clears throat> um, go to the next one. On matters that are not essential to the faith, you must value the relationship enough to surrender the bottom line. You understand what I mean by that? Okay. So Christians, let's say we're arguing about something that Christians like to argue about it, and it's not necessarily core to salvation. What, my, what I mean is, is that you can have a rock'em, sock'em argument about it, and you should. Well, I believe this, and you should believe that, but it does not mean that you sacrifice the relationship in order to maintain it. Does that make sense? Am I, is, is everyone please nod because I'm trying to figure out whether or not this is making sense to you or not. <laughs> okay. That to me shows humility. Right? That on the matters that you um, are willing, that, that on the matters that are non-essential to your faith, you would prioritize the relationship over being right. And that's not to say you can't argue. But I've seen some Christians have some knockdown dragon arguments over things that I think are trivial. Like whether or not you think the movie Chosen is a good movie. <laughs> I've seen that. Okay? And I think what you need to understand is that in order to maintain humility, you need, uh, or in order to maintain unity, you need to be humble. 
And I think that's one way you can look at it. The other way, going forward, Scripture says that you need humility and what? Gentleness. The gentle person is tactful. The gentle person is polite. The gentle person is civil, reasonable, courteous. I mean, all those words, when you think about gentleness, all those words come to mind because as we serve one another, we do not do it with a gruff spirit, but with a gentle one. So let me say this, if, if you and I need, want unity in our churches, in our, in our in interdominalization churches, in our marriages, in our relationships, then I'm going to ask that you work on gentleness. And let me, let me take some time here and save a few marriages here. Uh, gentleness. If you're dealing with division in your marriage, I want you to understand that maybe you should be working on the fact that you are too gruff with your spouse. Okay? In order to keep the unity of your marriage, you need to be gentle with your spouse. And here's what I mean by that. Some of you think that your enemy in your marriage is your husband or your wife. You're wrong. Your enemy is the devil. Your husband or wife is the person that you stood before God and witnesses and you proclaimed your unconditional love and devotion and your faithfulness in sickness and in health and for better or for worse or till death do us part. And now you're in one of those worst periods and God's word to you this morning, if you were consideration, separation or divorce, is that Jesus is asking you to find a way to maintain the unity with humility and gentleness. Like you, and that to me means that you bring to the surface all the unresolved issues, the unresolved conflicts, and uh, that's what you do. Now, how do you do that? Well, you could do a number of things. You could find a marriage counselor. I'm told that Mount Olive has a few. You could take freedom session. You could go to Ivan and Vicky and ask them for a marriage mentor. Okay? You just order a pizza from Harvest House and eat that thing until you figure it out. But do something. Just don't... What? That's, that's how we do it. <clears throat> could be why I need to lose some pounds. Yeah. But you need, you need to do something. Find a way. Be gentle with your spouse. Be gentle with each other. Thirdly, humility requires patience. Well, what does it mean to be patient? Patient means that you're going to have to deal with others and the things about them that really bother you and about the changes that they need to make in their own lives and they're going to make them a lot slower than you would imagine. How many of you get frustrated at people because you see them make decisions in your lives and you go and say, hey, this is what you need to do, and they don't do it and they don't change them fast? I do, right? Unity in the body, unity in your relationships, unity in the church, and unity at the denominational level requires that you give people patience. And to put it just a little bit bluntly or a little bit more practically, you need to give people some room. Yeah. Some of us are far too quick to assume ill intention when people make a mistake in church. You need to be patient. We all have issues we feel strongly about that, that don't define our salvation, but we can divide over them really quickly. Things like music style or COVID or spiritual gifts. 
okay? Unity means that you are patient and that you give people room, okay? Let me, let me put it to you another way. Did you believe everything that the Bible told you about it instantaneously when you became a Christian? Did you tithe right away? Did you surrender all your sins right away? Did you forgive right away? Nah, you probably took some time to do it. You need to be patient with people. Humility also means that we bear with one another in love. Right? That is, is that with our whole hearts, we have a genuine, genuine affection for each other, that we actually love people. Some of us give up too fast on bearing with one another. We need to be willing to bear with one another if we want to keep the unity. Okay. So let me put it another way. I'm going to speak to some of you who might have left a church over a disagreement. If you at one time attended a church or even this church, and you suddenly began to feel the Holy Spirit leads you to leave, ironically, at the same time that someone has offended you, hurt you, said something, forgot about you, or forgot to like one of your social media posts, let me say this. The Holy Spirit is not leading you. Your woundedness is. And I'm not saying that you're stuck at this church till death do us part, okay? I get it. I get that God calls some of us to leave and calls us to other churches, and that's fine. But my point is that if there's an offense or hurt and you're feeling led by the Spirit, the truth is your offense and hurt is leading you, not God. So first resolve the issue so that you can be led by the Holy Spirit, and maybe you still need to go. My point is, is that some of us aren't, some of us leave church too early because we are not willing to bear with one another in love. Okay? So please, 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 if, if you're feeling like the Holy Spirit is calling you to leave or if you have left a church, make sure that you've done your part to restore the relationship. Furthermore, in order for us to be unified, we have to be eager. Listen to what it says here in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. <clears throat> so what does that mean? When he means to be eager, he means to be zealous because, or to be urgent. And it's something that you do urgently. You must be zealous for unity. It's not something passive. There is an action step, something specifically you need to do. How urgently this week did you fight for church unity? Okay. How zealous for unity on those three levels were you? Did you pray for other churches in Three Hills this week? When was the last time? And, and I'm, I was just thinking about this in my own life because I'm a pastor. When was the last time you prayed for the success of a different church? And when I mean success, I mean biblical success, that they are preaching the gospel, that people are feeling love, that they're being discipled. When was the last time you prayed over that, over the tab, or Dave's church, or Brad's church, or, or, or Alvin? When was the last time you prayed for those things? Okay. 
because that actually signifies a unity, a zealousness. A, a, we've got to do something, and we've got to do it now. The other thing that I thought about when you think about the idea of eagerness is this. Is this is, you could do this in order to maintain an eagerness, is that you can make a personal vow that right relationship is more important than volunteering in ministry. Now let me talk about this for a minute, okay? I love serving in church, okay? So much so that it could be an idol for me, that I would be willing, and I have without even realizing it, neglected my own family and my own relationships in service of volunteering or doing something that. So I know that right away the volunteering, this gift of volunteering I give to God can be an act of uh, an act of idolatry sometimes. Sometimes I put ministry ahead of the lo loving people. So in order to have this eagerness, in order to fight for this unity, I make this personal vow in my own heart, like this is something I make for myself, that I will value relationship over serving, okay? And here's where this works out. It's, I know that it's not always possible to be at peace with everyone, but as far as I'm concerned, I will do everything that I possibly can to live in right relationship with each other. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. It says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, what does it say? Leave your gift at the altar... First, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So there's an order of priority there. It's not saying, hey, don't offer your gift. It's saying that you're, the relationship, the conflict that, that God is saying is that the relational conflict that's going on between your brother or sister right now is more important to him than the offering that you bring. And we don't give physical offering like we, we give our tithe, but we, most of us, we give our, our acts of service. So what I'm trying to say is this is that I think that if you want to be eager about unity, you could try making a vow that if you ever find yourself ignoring what you need to do to restore the relationship, you will pull away from ministry until you are. Okay? I worked at a church like that. The pastor, the senior pastor, the board member all the way down, way to the janitor, they made a rule that said this. If you are not willing to do your part to make the relationship right, you need to step down. That doesn't mean that, you know, you can't have relational conflict. It just means that you've done your part. It's not always possible to fix every relationship, but you must do your part too. And if you're not willing to, then that I say I suggest that that you're you're not showing that eagerness in maintaining the unity. Do you know what the result of making a rule in a church like that was? Unity. There was never a division in the church that would split the church like that. Ever. Because they made a rule like that. Going on, just a few little things and then we'll wrap up here. Unity is maintained, it's not created. Listen to what it says here. You are eager to maintain the unity. 
He doesn't say that you are, the you and I are created to create an atmosphere of unity. He doesn't say that. Look again. He says that you are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So what Paul wants us to say is that the Holy Spirit lives in our lives of all believers, and the Holy Spirit is also the life of the church, and he himself creates the atmosphere that pervades the unity of the church. So the fact is, what I'm trying to say is that a lot of churches, they ask the question, well, how can we be unified? How can we be unified? You're asking the wrong question. If you want the church to be unified, you don't focus on unity. You focus on Jesus. Okay? So our task is not to recreate the unity but rather protect the unity that is found in Jesus, that we are making sure that we are doing nothing in our own attitudes or actions, or we live in a way where we interact with people that will destroy what the Holy Spirit has created. Don't become, Paul is saying, an enemy of what the Holy Spirit is doing, something we shouldn't destroy. Don't wreck what the Holy Spirit does. And then he says, now watch this. He says that that Jesus is the bond of peace, okay? Now, you know what a bond is. A bond is something that ties two things together. And in this case, the things that are being tied together are the, peop- the various peoples that make up the church of Jesus Christ. We are being tied together in peace with one another, and we're to live with one another with, you know, going easy to warfare with one another, And I know that a lot of people might say, well, my experience in church has been one of constant fighting, and the church has been a place where I've been hurt, and the church has been a place where I've been abused. And first of all, if that is your experience, let me say to you that I'm sorry that 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 has happened. There are lots of cases of individuals who should have been in a place of safety when they came to church, and instead they were abused, mistreated, and not understood, and nobody was there to walk beside them, and they feel, you know, kind of left out in the cold. That's not the, holy, uh, that's not the culture that the Holy Spirit creates through the bond of peace. And I think what happened is long before that, pers- that, that person came to church, that hurtful culture showed up in church. Somebody or some people were involved in severing the bond of unity who were working against the activity of the Holy Spirit and who didn't have the character traits of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another that Paul has been speaking about. So, you know, the whole point is that we are to be unified. And why is unity so important in Jesus Christ? I'll end with this. It says in verse 4, 5, and 6 this, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and faith and and the Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What we have in Ephesus here is a very primitive ancient creed. There are seven things that the early Christians would have all been taught to memorize by Paul together. So, so what I'm going to say is what you've just read is the early seven-fold confession of the early church. And I don't know if you've ever been to church traditions where they read creeds, you know, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. But it seems here that because this is an open letter, 
addressed to multiple churches. Scholars believe that Paul expected them to memorize and recite this as a church. And here's why I think it's so important that you and I understand why unity is important to God. Because God only sees us as one. Think about this. God actually thinks we are united and that we are one body. He doesn't see manor or he doesn't see Troshu Baptist. He sees the church, right? And you can look at 25,000 feet up in our denominations, but he sees when, when, the, when there's the authentic church that believes the Bible and holds the essentials of faith, he sees one church. And he sees one church here in manor. He doesn't see factions of young and old and rich and poor. He sees one church and manner. And he sees one family. In, your, in the book of life, it's Dan and Elizabeth with no spaces in between. You're one. Understand something is that God's whole goal is to unite everything under Jesus Christ. Okay? It's all about oneness. You see, to Jesus, oneness is very, very, very important. Like I said at the beginning, right before Jesus dies, one of the things he prays for, for the future of the church, as they would be one as what? Say it with me. As you and I are one. What's that a reference to? The Trinity. Can you say then that the unity that you've experienced in church would remind you of the unity that God the Father, God the Son has has with the Son? Because that's what he's praying for. When you get married, we always quote that famous verse in Genesis that says, For this reason, a father and a son will leave his father and mother, and they will be united as one, right? And the idea of one there is not a physical oneness. It's a oneness that's all-encompassing. It's an emotional oneness. It's a financial oneness. It's a spiritual oneness. It's the idea that there are two separate lives that are so woven together. It's as if it's one life. Everything about what God does is trying to unite us under the banner of Jesus Christ. There is one body... One spirit. We have unity because we share of what we share in common. In Jesus, there is one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord. There is only one. One faith, one baptism. You're not multiply baptized into different things. There's one Father. We don't believe in lots of gods. We believe in one God. We believe in one Holy Spirit that binds us together. We have one hope that Jesus is coming back. We have one Lord that we submit to. We have one faith, not multiple faiths. Faith in this sense is a noun, not a verb, which means it's a declaration of what we believe. There is only one way to Jesus Christ. Why is unity important? Because there's only one. And we are to live a life like that. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to call Donna Louise up to close us out.